the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to be back in the USA and back behind the mic here on KPDQ. I want to thank James Blind for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering not only today's program, but the programs during the week I was absent. Now, you may know, or you may not, that I was traveling with Food for the Poor and had the opportunity to visit many of the ministries and places that you hear about during our partnership week with uh, Food for the Poor. And I have to tell you, some amazing people are doing extraordinary work under very difficult circumstances. Circumstances. I had the opportunity to visit some of the homes of uh, people who desperately need food and water, who desperately need a new place to live and so on. I'm going to be talking in greater detail about that when we get closer to our Food for the Poor event. But it was an extraordinary trip. We had the opportunity to travel with Angel Aloma, who is the president of Food for the Poor. Just a remarkable man. In fact, I asked him as we were parting if, he ever, if he'd ever be uh, interested in just doing an interview for the sake of learning. Learning more about him. He's of Lebanese descent. He lived in Cuba. He's lived in um, in uh, Jamaica. Just fascinating man and has all kinds of stories. He's, he's quite the, the character. So I'm hoping to do that at some point in the near future. But we also travel with the executive director, Todd Chapman, who uh, whose voice you hear on the program during our events and uh, several others from radio stations around the country. And together we had the uh, op- opportunity of something of a fact finding uh, trip so that we would all better understand what it is we're talking about when we're doing a food for the poor campaign and to really see what your generous uh, gifts are producing and providing in these areas. And I have to tell you, I'm, I'm impressed by much of uh, the work that's being done because of your generosity. And again, we'll have uh, more opportunity to share in detail about that when we get closer to our event. But just a wonderful opportunity to learn more about Food for the Poor and the people who are directly involved, not only the folks who uh, work in the headquarters in the Miami area, but also those who are doing the work on the ground in Guatemala. We uh, were stationed in Guatemala City and drove sometimes at a great distance to these smaller villages and rural areas where work is being done. And I can tell you that uh, the dollars that you have given are being very, very well spent. It's efficient. It's effective. And uh, I'm, I'm so grateful uh, to have represented the KPDQ listening audience who's played a major part in uh, meeting the needs of the poorest of the poor in and around Guatemala City. Well, taking a look at some of the developing news stories for the day, furloughed uh, federal employees uh, prepared to return to work today, which they did. The president says he doubts he could accept any deal from lawmakers that give him less than his requested $5.7 billion for a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border. And that, of course, fueled the possibility that there could be another partial government shutdown in a few weeks. On the converse side, the Democrats said, no, they're not that interested in uh, $5.7 billion for a wall. So the Face-off continues. In an interview with the Wall Street Journal on Sunday, the president also was skeptical on whether a bipartisan group of lawmakers chosen to negotiate a budget deal could reach an agreement before funding for most government agencies runs out on the 15th of February. 
the day after Valentine's Day. He said, I personally think it's less than 50-50, but you have a lot of very good people on that board. On Friday, the president signed a short-term spending bill, reopening the government, ending the 35-day shutdown without any funding for his long-promised border barrier, a reversal of his uh, uh, from last month, rather, when he refused to sign any funding legislation that did not provide wall money. Acting White House Chief of Staff uh, uh, Mike Mulroney, uh, he strongly suggested on Fox News Sunday that the president will construct a border wall using his emergency powers if Congress cannot agree on a compromise to fund the construction of uh, rather, in the next three weeks. And Kamala, Senator Kamala Harris, a Democrat from California, formally um, launched her run for the Democratic presidential nomination on Sunday with a full-fledged embrace of big government programs, including Medicare for All, universal pre-kindergarten education, and taking multiple uh, shots at President Trump's policies without naming him um, specifically. Now, most Americans pay in about $180,000 over the course of their uh, working years. Uh, however, the government spends about $480,000 on Medicare recipients. How that pencils out in terms of uh, budget is not altogether clear. But she said, I'm running to fight for an America where the economy works for working people. She told a cheering crowd outside City Hall in her hometown of Oakland up to about 20,000. I am running to declare once and for all that health care is a fundamental right and to deliver that right with Medicare for all to declare education as a fundamental right. And we will guarantee that right with universal pre-K and debt-free college. Again, how to fund all of that. We'll have to see what she has to say moving forward. She also slammed the president's planned border wall as a medieval vanity project and criticized the administration for its hardline immigration policy. A former longtime Trump advisor, Roger Stone, on Sunday gave mixed signals on whether he would cooperate with special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation after being indicted for obstruction. Stone appeared to uh, open the door to cooperating with Mueller, telling anchor George Stephanopoulos on ABC News this week he hasn't ruled out the possibility of striking a deal with prosecutors if a deal is presented. Um, uh, That's the question I'll have to determine after my attorneys have had some discussion. And on this day in 1986, the space shuttle Challenger explodes 73 seconds after liftoff from Cape Canaveral, killing all seven crew members, including school teacher Krista McAuliffe. And on this day in 1956, Elvis Presley makes his first national TV uh, appearance on stage, um, a CBS program hosted by Tommy and Jimmy Dorsey, 1956, the year I was born. And on this day in 1915, the United States Coast Guard is created as President Woodrow Wilson signs a bill merging the life-saving service and revenue cutter service. And the Coast Guard was born. Well, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi back on the 23rd sent a letter to President uh, Trump um, informing him that she will not allow his State of the Union address to move forward. She wrote at the time, I am writing to inform you the House of Representatives will not consider a concurrent resolution authorizing the president's State of the Union address in the House chamber until government has opened. She wrote, I look forward to welcoming you to the House on a mutually agreeable date for this address when government has opened. Well, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi today invited President Trump to deliver the State of the Union address on the 5th of February. The invitation from Pelosi comes after a planned January 29th date to give the address was scuffled uh, due to the partial government shutdown. That led to a a contentious back and forth between the president and House Speaker and the House Speaker, rather, before the president announced a deal to reopen the government on the 25th. When I wrote to you on January 23rd, I stated that we should work together to find a mutually agreeable date when government has reopened to schedule this year's State of the Union address. She wrote in her new invitation to the president in our conversation today, we agreed on February the 5th. Therefore, I invite you to deliver your State of the Union address before a joint 
a session of Congress on February 5th in the House chambers. So that will move forward on that date. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but we will be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 19 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later in this hour, we're going to talk with Johnny Erickson Tata. Her latest book is a re-release, Heaven, Your Real Home from a Higher Perspective. She'll join us to talk about this re-release. We'll also talk with uh, Dr. Greg Jans. He is uh, the author of Healing the Scars of Addiction, Reclaiming Your Life and Moving into a Healthy Future. That's coming up in the next segment and at the 5 o'clock hour. We're learning that five police officers were struck by gunfire in Houston today. The condition of the officers isn't immediately available, but the officers were shot at a home the southeast portion of the city. Uh, The suspect in the shooting, according to Houston Mayor uh, Sylvester Turner, is down. They're responding to a scene uh, where officers have been struck with gunfire following an encounter with a suspect. The police say officers are en route to hospital. Um, They're asking people in that area to avoid the area, and more information will be Forthcoming. Well, the White House today announced billions of dollars in new sanctions against Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro and the country's state-owned oil monopoly, PDVSA, less than a week after President Trump formally recognized Juan Guido as Venezuela's legitimate leader. National Security Advisor's uh, John Bolton, singular, by the way, meanwhile, um, warned that all options are on the table and that Venezuela would face a significant response if any harm came to U.S. diplomatic personnel. Uh, to the um, president-elect or Venezuela's opposition-led National Assembly. The potentially devastating economic move was uh, aimed at increasing pressure on Maduro to cede power to the opposition. Venezuela is uh, heavily reliant on the U.S. for its oil revenue and sends 41 percent of its oil exports to the United States. Well, if you're wondering why Venezuela is back in the uh, in the news on the front pages, why the president and the administration is making such a big fuss about it and why observers seem so anxious about the country's political crisis, uh, then consider this. There are three immediate reasons all related to a political crisis that's been building in the country for years. First, there were nationwide protests against the government on Wednesday last Uh, They were the first large-scale demonstrations since the president, Nicolas Maduro, reacted to the last round of large demonstrations in 2017 with a deadly crackdown. Second, an opposition lawmaker named Juan Guido um, declared the current government illegitimate and announced that he would be willing to lead a caretaker government on its own, Mr. Guido's statement Can't force any real change, but it has heightened speculation that the military could push out the current government. And third, the United States and several other governments in the Western Hemisphere have announced that they consider Mr. Guido to be Venezuela's legitimate leader. Now, where this will go, we'll have to just uh, watch and see. But that's why it's in uh, it's in the news. Well, thanks to legislation, uh, legislative approval, rather, of a deceptively titled Reproductive Health Act, Uh, Last week uh, marked another dark period for children in New York, some of whom will be legally terminated days, hours or even minutes before they would otherwise experience life outside the womb. Given that the um, Tuesday was the 46th anniversary of Roe versus Wade, the day was already doleful, but that didn't stop lawmakers from imposing an even grimmer reality. The Reproductive Health Act had already cleared the House, uh, the state assembly, rather, in New York, where 92 members voted to approve it and just 47 voted against it. The legislation was then voted on by the state Senate on Tuesday. The vote there was 38-24. Unsurprisingly, New York Governor uh, Mario, or rather Andrew Cuomo, a Democrat and a Catholic, 
signed the bill with glee. CBS New York reports that provisions in the bill include dropping most restrictions on abortion after 24 weeks, allowing midwives and nurse practitioners to perform abortions and ending criminal charges for harming children in the womb, even when a criminal assaults a mother who wants that child in utero. Stacey Lennox at the resurgent underscored an extremely important point when she wrote, the impact is twofold. First, nearly all criminal penalties are removed from killing a baby inside the womb. A mother who is 30 weeks pregnant and stabbed in the abdomen, killing her unborn child, will see no prosecution for the death of her baby, though fully formed. Next, because of definitions in previous court rulings, those factors that relate to the health of a woman are broadly defined. So in New York, no one Uh, can be prosecuted for the deliberate or accidental killing of an unborn child. And health is so broadly defined as to make almost any issue sufficient for a woman to request an abortion. New York just legalized Kermit Gosnell, end quote. Well, Governor Cuomo, for his part, asserted the Reproductive Health Act is an historic victory for New Yorkers and for our progressive values. In the face of a federal government intent on rolling back Roe versus Wade and women's reproductive rights, of course, it's the right not to reproduce, I promised that we would enact this critical legislation within the first 30 days of the new session, and we got it done. I am directing the New York, um, directing rather that New York's landmarks be lit in pink to celebrate this achievement, as he referred to it, and shine a bright light forward for the rest of the nation to follow. Now, Keep in mind, he's talking about the deliberate destruction of unborn children in utero all the way up to full term uh, before uh, delivery. Well, that last part isn't a farce. It's rather sick. As the Daily Signal reported, the governor instructed that the spire on the One World Trade Center, the governor um, Mario M. Cuomo uh, bridge, the a different bridge in the Alfred Smith building in Albany, all be lit in pink on Tuesday night. Blood red would have been more appropriate, but nonetheless, it's a rather bittersweet Cuomo fretted. There is a bittersweet um, uh, side bitterness, rather, because we shouldn't be here in the first place. Well, I would agree with him on that point. It may be the first thing we've ever agreed upon, but he went on to say, we should not have a federal government that is trying to roll back women's rights. This administration defies American evolution. Uh, Sadly, the left cares more about American evolution than the creation of human life. We'll leave it at that. Catholic leaders are suggesting that um, Governor Cuomo, a Catholic, be excommunicated as a result of uh, this decision. Catholic leaders of New York um, expressed profound sadness before the Abortion uh, Reproductive Right Act uh, was passed into law. The statement is welcome. Sadly, it's a day too late and a dollar short. John Zmirak of Lightside uh, Life Side News uh, also pointed out. Well, the 46th anniversary of the infamous Roe versus Wade decision took place on the 22nd of January. That was last week. That was the Supreme Court ruling that legalized the termination of unborn life as a social right of convenience. In the ensuing years, 60 million children have lost their lives, and every year, pro-lifers recognize Sanctity of Life Day as a wake-up call to the conscience of our nation to embrace and fight for the right to life for the most innocent among us. Or where does the country currently stand in this ongoing struggle? There's both good and bad news, success and setback, but overall there were encouraging signs that the pro-life movement is making gains in this fight against the greatest evil of our time. 
first, the bad news. Planned Parenthood, the leading provider of abortion in the U.S., reportedly totaled 332,757 babies, each distinct in God's eyes, aborted in 2017, an increase of 11,373 babies from the previous year. Planned Parenthood also reported that it received $563.8 million in revenue from government health service reimbursements and grants through the year ending June 30th, 2018. In other words, your tax dollars. Uh, Planned Parenthood has been steadily increasing the amount of taxpayer funding it receives each year, despite a supposed prohibition on federal dollars being used for abortion. Even so, the sad reality is that Planned Parenthood doesn't depend upon taxpayer funding to survive. National Review reported that Planned Parenthood raked in $100 million more in private contributions than it had in the previous fiscal year, bringing the grand total of donations to $631 million. Given its many high-profile supporters and its billions in assets, it's ludicrous for the Group to claim that it relies heavily on federal reimbursements and grants to conduct its well business. Planned Parenthood, rather, has worked to gain greater taxpayer funding as a means of promoting the false image of being a legitimate health care provider, which in turn creates cover for politicians to justify their defense of immoral. Uh, the immoral organization. However, there is real progress being made against abortion. Last week, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that the state of Texas can strip taxpayer funding from abortion, from Planned Parenthood, rather, interchangeable. Recall in 2015, the Center for Medical Progress uh, released undercover videos of Planned Parenthood members discussing illegally harvesting and selling organs and tissue from aborted babies. Following the video's uh, revelations, Planned Parenthood sued, alleging that CMP deceptively edited the film's footage, a twisted excuse for a uh, sick practice. Meanwhile, the latest Marist poll shows that a growing majority of Americans support pro-life ideas and increased restrictions to limit abortions, contrary to what just happened in New York. Just 15 percent of Americans believe abortions should be unrestricted at any point during pregnancy, while 84 percent favor a variety of restrictions, including banning late-term abortions. Indeed, what may be One of the most encouraging signs of the ongoing progress of the pro-life movement is the 65 percent of Americans now believe the Supreme Court should rule to make abortions illegal or at least make it an issue to be decided on a state by state basis. The fight to preserve the right to life of the unborn is far from over, but there is plenty of reason to be optimistic about the future. In the meantime, the pro-life movement continues the struggle. We may never win it. But speaking rightly is always the right thing to do. Well, by the way, in just one year, the U.S. climbed six places to 12th worldwide on the Heritage Foundation's 25th Annual Index of Economic Freedom. The U.S. index score of 76.8 is the highest since 2011, the report says. Heritage bases its annual rankings on a dozen different measures of economic freedom, such as tax burden, protection of property rights, tax burden trade policies, labor laws, judicial effectiveness, and so on. Well, the reason for the U.S. gain was mainly the tax cuts and deregulatory efforts under the Trump administration. The gains would have been uh, bigger had it not been for the growing budget deficit, minimum wage laws, and Trump's trade battles. Nevertheless, it's a welcome relief from the previous eight years, which saw economic freedom steadily decline under President Obama. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Johnny Erickson Tata. Heaven, your real home from a higher perspective, from a woman who has real credibility. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest became a quadriplegic. She had a diving accident in 1967, 
She's the founder of a ministry to the disabled, and she writes with an eternal perspective. Her book, Heaven, Your Real Home from a Higher Perspective, is a book that's been rewritten in light of years of serving sitting in a wheelchair. In the book, the founder of Johnny and Friends tells her readers about the blessings that came with her suffering. She says, 50 years of paralysis, 50 years in a wheelchair, I have no regrets. Now that gives us a moment to pause. Everything else, everything this world has to offer, she writes, pales, fades to less than nothing in comparison to daily companionship with the Son of God and the prospect of being home with him forever. Well, of course, I'm referring to Johnny Erickson Tata. She's founder and CEO of Johnny and Friends, an organization that that um, uh, accelerates Christian outreach to and uh, with the disability community. She is also the author of numerous best-selling books, including When God Weeps, Diamonds in the Dust, and A Spectacle of Glory. Johnny and her husband, Ken, have been married for 36 years, and she joins us today to talk about the re-release of her profound book, Heaven, Your Real Home. Johnny Erickson Tata, it is a pleasure to have you back. Oh, Georgine, thanks for having me, and of course, uh, all our friends listening today. Now, this book, Heaven, was released originally in 1995, but you decided to update and re-release the book because you've experienced so much more of life Uh, since that first release. Talk a little bit about um, the first version as compared to the the second edition, looking back over those many years. Well, um, not long ago, about a year or so ago, I decided to pick up that book that I wrote 25 years ago, Heaven Your Old Home, you mentioned it. But when I was reading it, I, I just thought, you know, I've got so much more to say. This In this book, it's like... um like only a a story half told because I'm in such a different place in my journey right now in body and my soul and spirit. It it feels like I've come such a great distance. Now that might be because what, you know, 52 years in a wheelchair and uh, daily living with the effects of gravity on my aging paralyzed body. It might be uh, because of the battle with cancer I had back in 2010. And of course now it's recurred and I'm battling it again. Obviously, uh, it could be uh, day after day living with chronic pain, but my life now looks different to me now than it did 25 years ago. I've, I've, I've studied more. I have suffered more. I have endured more. I've learned more. I've prayed more. And I guess, Georgina, I've just fallen in love with Jesus. Mm. And so I, I wanted to talk about that in this uh, revised edition of my book on heaven. Now you write in the preface to the new edition that the longer you journey with your eyes on heaven, the more you begin to see. I think many of us might assume that living with a suffering that increases over time, you might have less regard for uh, the things that the scriptures have to say about heaven, that bitterness uh, might settle in. But you write just the opposite, that you long for heaven in a different way than you did in those early days, uh, but have come to understand it perhaps a bit better and long for it differently. Absolutely. You know, we often, when we, when we think about heaven, uh, we can't help but think of uh, 24 karat gold streets and tree-lined crystal rivers and uh, rainbow thrones and uh, lakes of, of, of made of glass and, it, and, and the New Jerusalem, which looks like uh, you know, it probably uh, pales the city of Oz in comparison. I mean, it just doesn't look very appealing. It doesn't look very attractive. But 
heaven isn't so much a place of of 24 karat gold streets and and uh, tree-lined avenues that flow from a throne in the center of this magnificent city. No, heaven is more of a person. But I didn't say nearly enough about that in the first book. Um, I, I just want people to understand that to long for heaven is to long for Jesus. And and if we don't have if we don't have good thoughts about heaven, if we don't get excited about going there, if we're not investing our heart's treasures there, then I, I would beg to say that perhaps we're not searching after Jesus hard enough. Mm. If, because if we don't love Jesus, if we're not in love with Jesus, we're, we're not going to be excited about heaven. But if we do love him, oh my goodness, wherever he is, we want to be. And of course, that's in heaven. So in this book, um, I talk a lot about my friend, the Lord Jesus, who's closer than a brother. He is my bridegroom, the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's the king. He's my king. And prolonged suffering, Georgina, I think has given me that focus. As, as the days slip by, as I deal with chronic pain daily, and now this second bat- battle with stage three cancer, my focus is much, much more on Jesus, which means my focus is much more on heaven. Mm. You point out that in the early days of your paralysis, you were fascinated by heaven because uh, you would be healed there. Um, it was an escape from the reality that you uh, lived at the time and still live in even more painful ways. But you write that your perception of heaven has changed as you've gained spiritual maturity. And that should really be the trajectory of our understanding in regard for heaven, regardless of our physical circumstance, should it not? Oh, absolutely. You know, often when we think of heaven, we think of what we're going to get. We think of what we're going to gain. And so many people look at me, a quadriplegic, paralyzed in this wheelchair, and they probably assume that all I ever think about when I think of heaven is getting back use of my body, glorified hands at work and feet that run, and I'll be able to jump up and do dance and kick and do aerobics and embrace my friends and feel my feet on running on a meadow or splashing in a stream or you know, reaching for any. They assume that I'm looking forward to heaven because I want my new body. Again, we often look at heaven as a place where we will get things or gain things or get back what we lost here on earth. But I tell you, Georgian, the more I study the Lord Jesus and fall in love with him, the more I want in heaven to have a new heart. I want a heart that's free of sin. I want a heart that no longer tries to twist the truth. I want a heart that doesn't... um, uh, you know, fudge the truth or manipulate others with precisely timed phrases. It's not always hogging the spotlight. I want a heart that that looks out for the interest of others first before my own. I want a heart that doesn't bear a grudge, that, that thinks the best of other people. I, mean, I want a heart that doesn't sin. I think that's what I am mm. most looking forward to in heaven. Not a new body, but a new heart. Because heaven is a holy habitation for holy people. And if we don't get about the business of being holy as Christ is holy down here on earth, then there's going to be nothing appealing about heaven to draw us. So as I've fallen in love more with Christ, again, which has given me a longing for heaven, it means I want to get rid of sin in my life. I want to divest myself of self-interest, self-righteousness, self-awareness, self-consciousness, self-consumption, I just want to get rid of the self and be less of me and have more 
of him. And this book will help people do just that as they read their journey with me in this whole exciting adventure of dying to yourself daily and rising with Jesus. Every morning I get up and I've got to go through a bed bath and people um, you know, doing my toileting routines and giving me leg exercises and putting on my clothes and strapping on my corset and lifting me in a wheelchair and brushing my teeth and brushing my hair. And I mean, every morning I've got to die to myself and say, no, I, 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 I can't. I can't allow pity, self-pity to overtake me. I, I've got to die to myself and my own wants and wishes. And I've got to rise to Jesus and his grace, his empowerment, his enablement. And, and, and that's the way to fall in love in heaven. Yeah. Die to yourself daily and, and, uh, and live for Jesus that day. And that begins with preparation even now in, in making that something that we desire here on earth. I know for many people, when they think about heaven, they just think about the absence of hell. If I can just escape hell, then that will be heaven. We just want to get there having little understanding or regard for what it, that might mean. But it's just an escape from something else. Similarly to, um, you know, the, the thought that heaven will relieve me of the things that I uh, that I dislike here on earth. What do you say to those who... Uh, see heaven is just the opposite of, of hell in a place of uh, at least escaping that. Well, you know, um, I love what C.S. Lewis said, Georgine. He, he alluded something to the fact that that life here on earth is like, it's like reading the title page. It, that's all it is. It's not the real story, but we get caught up in it as though it were the real story. But life here on earth is but the title page. We turn that title page we leapfrog our tombstone. We enter through those gates of pearl and step into heaven. And that's when the real story begins. That's where chapter one begins. The real uh, story for which we were created. Uh, down here on earth is only preparation for that marvelous story yet to be lived up there. And God is fitting for us, uh, fitting us for heaven right now. And everything we do down here on earth, everything has a direct bearing on our capacity for joy and worship and service in heaven. Um, every drastic little obedience, every time we say no to temptation, every kind word we offer, every thoughtful deed we give to a neighbor, everything is accruing for us a larger capacity, a stretched and eternal capacity for bigger worship, greater joy and happier service in heaven. And Georgine, I don't wanna miss those opportunities. I don't want to meander through life with a ho-hum spiritual attitude, half-heartedly uh, in love with Jesus. I don't want um, to, to live a life of complaint and discontent. No, I'm not going to, I don't want to miss the opportunity of increasing my eternal capacity for serving Jesus and worshiping him and enjoying him forever. So I think Earth, for us, Earth's challenge is to see it as the minor leagues. We're in training for the major leagues in heaven, and I don't want to be less in the kingdom of heaven. Boy, it would be wonderful to one day be considered great in the kingdom of heaven because there will be degrees of joy and service and worship in heaven. Some will have lesser of a degree, uh, and others will have greater degrees. And how we live on earth uh, depends on where our eternal estate will be. So um, get busy about investing in heavenly glories above, like Colossians chapter 3 says, Set your mind, set your heart, set your focus on, on heaven above. And suffering down here on earth, it's a great way to do just that. Mm. 
Amen. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. We're talking with Johnny Erickson Tata, the re-release of her book written back in the mid-90s, Heaven, Your Real Home from a Higher Perspective, and she offers her perspective from 2018. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Johnny Erickson Tata. She is the author of Heaven, Your Real Home from a Higher Perspective. And this is the re-release of the book that she wrote originally in 1995. Of course, it's been updated from her perspective of uh, spiritual maturity, and it's just a delight to read. She's just a, such a beautiful writer. In fact, in the introduction, she writes, Actual mountains and clouds are exalting, but even the most beautiful displays of Earth's glory, towering thunderheads above a wheat field, or the view of the Grand Canyon from the South Rim are only rough sketches of heaven. Earth's best is only a dim reflection, a preliminary rendering of the glory that will one day be revealed. I can just have that sense. It resonates in my heart, uh, that anticipation of heaven, and it really reflects and has a, an impact on what I do here on Earth as we are preparing in the minor leagues for that major league day. Now, I would be remiss, and I know I would hear from listeners if I didn't uh, take the opportunity to ask you how you were doing. You mentioned uh, earlier in our conversation that you have been diagnosed with stage three cancer. What does that mean for you, and how are you doing? Well, uh, they discovered this cancer back in early December of 2018, and uh, I had the tumor removed, and uh, currently I'm under radiation. Uh, let's see, this morning was my 19th radiation mm. treatment out of 35. So uh, tomorrow, will, tomorrow will be number 20, and I'll have, uh, what, 15 more to go to reach 35. So I'm hanging in there. Um, our listeners might think that my voice sounds a little froggy, a little weak. Well, it is, I guess, after so much radiation. Um, they have to protect my lungs as best they can, but uh, no doubt my lungs as weak as they are as a quadriplegic, will be affected. But, um, but that's okay. You know, here I am talking to you, expending breath, got lots of energy, and I'm extremely grateful to God. You know, when, when I learned I got this, uh, this cancer, this reoccurring cancer for a second time, they told me that it was, uh, because it was reoccurring, it was going to be a little more aggressive and faster growing. But Psalm 112 has been such a mainstay where the first few verses say, how joyful are those who fear the Lord. Such people will not be overcome by evil. They do not fear bad news. They're confident and they can face their foes triumphantly because they trust that the Lord will care for them. And Georgine, that's, that's, that's my mainstay. I'm not going to fear this as bad news. I trust in a sovereign God who has everything under control. He knows what's best for my spiritual development. Um, and it's, well, this has bound my husband and me so much more closely together. Mm. My friends and I, are, they're all so much more supportive. And it's just wonderful to see this, this community that God has fashioned around this battle against cancer. A community of prayer, support, love, uh, fresh-cooked meals brought to my front door. <laughs> it's, it's been um, it's been a great experience thus far. It really has. Mm. Well, I know many of our listeners are a part of that grand company that has been and will continue to pray for you and for your husband. 
so grateful for the opportunity to talk with you today. Um, You write that uh, heaven is more real than we can imagine, too grand for the human mind to comprehend, too wondrous for our language to describe. And we do oftentimes struggle with what is heaven exactly? And you in the book, you you give us what scripture has to say in a way that's perhaps a a bit easier for us uh, to understand as you talk about what heaven is, what we will be like when we're there, and what to anticipate. And I think it really adds to our joy of anticipating and makes our, our suffering and our trials a bit more bearable. Well, I'm glad you said that about our suffering, because uh, that is what really prepares us to meet God in heaven, our suffering. Because just think, suppose you never in your life knew physical pain. Suppose you never had a sore back or twisted ankle or decayed molar. I mean, how could you appreciate the scarred hands with which Christ will greet you. And now, if Jesus went through so much suffering to secure for us that which we don't deserve, my goodness, why why should we complain about our suffering here on earth? It's only a tiny fraction of what he went through on our behalf. But if instead, when we suffer, if we would but stifle complaints and rejoice in the privilege of participating in his sufferings, we're going to be overjoyed when glory bursts on the scene because Romans chapter 8 promises us we're going to share in his glory. You know, I've often said, Georgine, that in a way I hope I could take to heaven my old, tattered, Everson Jennings wheelchair. Hmm. Uh, I know I'm not, I know I can't do that, (laughs) but if I could, I I would, and I would point to the empty seat, and I would say, Lord Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? For decades when you had me in it, I was paralyzed, but it showed me how paralyzed you must have felt to be nailed to your cross. My limitations taught me something about the limitations that you endured when you laid aside your robes of glory to, 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 to enter into suffering, our suffering. And at that point, when, when I say, thank you, Jesus, he will know that I mean it because he will see and understand that I, too, have suffered. He will recognize me from having entered with him into that inner sanctum of fellowshipping and the sharing of his sufferings. And so when I get a chance to thank him, I'm going to say, Jesus, the weaker I felt in this wheelchair, the harder I leaned on you. But the harder I did lean on you, Jesus, the more I discovered how strong you are. So thank you, Lord, for learning obedience in your suffering because you gave me the grace to yes. learn how to obey in my suffering. And yes. that, that, that one commonality we'll have, suffering. It's what is going to bind us so much more intimately together in heaven. Mm, that's so beautiful. Well, let me ask, what will we do in heaven? I think a lot of people have the misconception that heaven's going to be pretty boring because, you know, there's a lot to do here on earth. And the God of the universe who spoke this earth and everything on it into existence somehow is not creative enough to uh, design a heaven in which we will be challenged and joyful and, and uh, satisfied and so on. Well, for one thing, the Bible says we are going to judge fallen angels. Right beside the Lord Jesus, that's his co-heir, we will judge fallen angels. And, and Georgine, I, I don't know who those demons are, but I know they have harassed me at night at 4 a.m. when I have awakened in pain and I can't get back to sleep and being paralyzed. I can't twist or turn on my mattress. I, I can't get, a, get in a different position. And I'll lie there and I'll feel harassed by doubting the goodness of God or I'll feel harassed by some demon whispering to me that, that God isn't fair. Look what he's making me go through. I mean, there's so many harassing spirits, and I don't know their names, and I don't care to know their names, 
but when I get to heaven, I'll get a chance to judge them. Mm. And my friends listening will do the same for every time they've been haunted by spirits of depression or despair or thoughts of suicide. I mean, these just aren't innocuous um, thoughts that, that flit in and out of our mind. No, Satan, our adversary, sends his minions to harass us and torment us just as they did Jesus, our elder brother. So we're going to get a chance to sit in judgment over those angels and fallen angels, and I cannot wait for that day. And when they get thrown into the lake of fire, and from now on, it'll be the anointed of the Lord entering Zion with joy and gladness, sorrow and sign shall flee away, everlasting joy will crown our heads, and it is going to be not the day of Johnny or the or Georgine or the day of any of us who are listening in on this conversation. No, it's going to be the day of Christ. It's going to be Jesus' day. And I'm so excited about rejoicing with him at being crowned king of kings and lord of lords in the whole universe. It's going to be quite a party. And so now the work that we have to do is issue party invitations. Come to the banquet. Don't miss out. It, it, you know, this is, this is one celebration that's going to last forever. And if we're going to get younger and younger and wiser and wiser, discovering things more and more. You know, I was talking to somebody just the other day about, he was saying, but heaven, isn't it going to be boring? I mean, worshiping God forever? That's like singing a praise song 1,495 times. You get so tired of it. Please let me sing something else. We're going to get bored. But I said to him, do you know that portion of scripture in Deuteronomy where the seraphim are praising God constantly, day in, day, day out, 24 hours, they're nonstop saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Well, you might think that's boring, but what I like to think is God shows them some marvelous facet of his character, hmm. and when they see that facet, they go, oh, holy, 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 we didn't know you were like that, Jesus. Oh, my goodness. But then, in the middle of their praise, God will turn slightly like a diamond, revealing another amazing, new, brand new facet of his character. And the seraphim discovered that. And oh my goodness, breathless, they go, holy, 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 we never knew that about you, God. And it's going to be like that for all of eternity. God is constantly going to be showing us something new, something fresh about himself for us to discover. And so no boredom in heaven, just one constant, oh, amazing breath of wonder after another as we discover more about him, discover more about ourselves, about each other, and about this marvelous plan for all of eternity that he has for us to rule the universe. I don't know what that means, but it sounds pretty exciting to me. It certainly does. Well, Johnny, I so appreciate your taking the time to talk with us about the re-release of your book, Heaven, Your Real Home from a Higher Perspective. It certainly has been an inspiration to me, and I would recommend our listeners who want to know a little bit more about Jesus and that place that he is going to call us to. Um, this is a great book to do that. It's published by Zondervan. Lord bless you, and you will certainly be in our prayers. Thanks, Georgine. Take care. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Again, Johnny Erickson Tata, one of the world's leading international advocates for people affected by disability, 50 plus years, 52 or 53 years in that wheelchair as a paraplegic and such ministry that has flowed from uh, this suffering heart is uh, just amazing. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. 
Well, addictive disorders are on the rise among all Americans. In fact, my next guest, Dr. Greg Jantz, says that people today are addicted in ways that past generations couldn't have imagined when he started counseling some 30 years ago. Billions of dollars are spent on various life-altering addictions, from opioids to technology, food, alcohol, sex, and myriad other distractions that can take over one's life. Well, Dr. Jans is the author of Healing the Scars of Addiction, a look into addiction which he refers to as a strong compulsion to do something harmful. Most important, addiction doesn't go away on its own. It doesn't get better, it gets worse. Pretending addiction doesn't exist ensures that it does, he says. Just knowing the facts about something harmful doesn't change behavior. 60% of Americans don't follow doctor's orders on prescription medications. One in five deaths are attributed to tobacco. Food addictions have led to a third of Americans being obese, sex, gambling, shopping, technology, the American penchant for excesses has been growing. Well, in Healing the Scars of Addiction, Dr. Uh, Jantz offers real-life solutions to reaching out for help, finding freedom, and moving past the prison of shame. The first step to recovery is uh, hard because it means accepting the truth that you have a problem. But most feel a sense of failure, of being exposed, which in turn leads to a fear of rejection. He helps us see why the first step isn't enough, how to put your life back together, and embrace lasting change. Well, Dr. Gregory uh, Greg Jantz is a certified eating disorder specialist certified chemical dependent uh, dependency counselor, a nationally certified psychologist, and a licensed mental health counselor. He's the author of 28 books. Dr. Jantz is the founder of The Center, a place of hope, which is among the top facilities for treatment of depression in the United States. He brings a message of hope and healing to audiences through seminars, conferences, and the media. He joins us today to talk about his uh, latest book, simply titled Healing the Scars of Addiction. Dr. Jantz, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, good to be with you today. Addiction, such an important topic. It really is. It's a difficult topic to discuss because, as uh, was mentioned, we really are reluctant to admit that we are struggling in that way. You pointed out that there's a difference between the addiction that you see today and what you have seen over the course of your 30-plus year uh, practice. What's, what's different about addictions today than what you witnessed in the past? Well, I think we have more ways to be addicted than ever before. Mm -hmm. We think about technology, we think of online pornography. Uh, So often when we thought of addiction in the past, you go, well, it's alcohol, it's drugs. But the accessibility to other ways of becoming addicted, uh, and even with the legalization of uh, cannabis in so many states, uh, we're seeing a real increase in addictions in general. You say that the, the addiction creates uh, lots of questions, and finding the answers can be something of a of a challenge. What are some of the questions that surround addiction? Well, you know, sometimes we look at addiction and we, and we go, well, why doesn't a person stop? What is wrong with them? And there's judgments that are made. And addiction can be looked at through different lens. There's the lens of uh, what has been called the disease model. It's a disease and it needs medical treatment. Uh, There's uh, people who see it as simply um, a decision of the will. Uh, There's others that may see it as a spiritual issue. Whatever it is and however we look at it, we know that uh, an addiction has a predictable course. It, It takes you farther than you ever wanted to go. An addiction can be a real slow self-destruction in uh, not only our own lives, but the lives of, of others as well. 
You write that addiction doesn't go away on its own. Um, how do you overcome it? We see lots of, uh, of uh, attention focused on the fact that addiction exists and some solutions that are also uh, advertised. But how do people overcome addiction? Well, recovery, and there'll be people who are hearing our, our voices today and they go, you know what, I, I went into AA or I went into a treatment program and um, I recovered. And so there's others that say, you know what, I've been to seven or eight different treatment programs and I'm still struggling. That said, uh, you know, there's a road to recovery that can be different for individuals. We're, we're just simply biased in our approach, and I'm smiling because uh, it's been 34 years, and we treat people from literally all over the country who uh, come in for depression, anxiety, and addiction. And we really believe you've got to look at this from a whole person uh, point of view. We know that addictions alter brain chemistry. We know they alter uh, even how our digestion works and our nutrient deficiencies. Uh, we know that addictions can create a lot of shame and where we, we feel uh, that we isolate and withdraw from others. So uh, we really believe in this, what I'm calling the whole person approach. And, you know, usually people who have addictions, they're not doing well nutritionally, not doing good self-care. So we, we feel you've got to cover all the bases. Now, uh, you make the point that addiction uh, thrives in secrecy, and I think you mentioned a moment ago that shame is oftentimes the thing that prevents uh, those who are addicted from stepping forward to admitting to themselves or certainly to others. Uh, In what ways does addiction thrive in secrecy, and why is it important to bring that out into the light? You know, because addictions hide in secrecy, and addictions also uh, are such that they, they, they're shameful and we want to hide and that isolation keeps it, keeps it, if you will, more alive and more destructive. You know, this is why people usually, they, they try to hide their addictions. Now, in what ways, um, uh, well, I should say, you mentioned the, the many of the things that we become addicted to. Are there some predominant addictions that we're facing today? You know, I'm I'm going to say we do have a technology addiction, and and I know that that's interesting uh, to hear. There are those that um, they're more intimate with online relationships than they are in in real life. Uh, there are those um, that certainly uh, have uh, addiction to pornography. It's very clear. Uh, we know that. Um, the whole area of uh, when we look at online, uh, we see people who come and maybe three days without technology, we see withdrawal symptoms. We see, you know, shaky hands, sweaty palms, heart rate goes up. We see all the same withdrawal symptoms. So uh, that's one we have to look at. Mm-hmm. Now, are there some that are worse than others? You mentioned uh, addiction to technology in general or addiction to technology. Technology that focuses on pornography, for example, are all addictions uh, equal or are there some more dangerous than others or are there some that are acceptable? You know, I think about acceptable addictions. That's a, a, maybe a funny way of saying yeah, this. Yeah. And, um, I don't know that we really would say that an addiction is an addiction is something that's going to uh, be destructive in some way. And so we don't want to say 
really acceptable. I know people who I believe may be addicted to exercise. Mm-hmm. And uh, that exercise, uh, you know, it's hurting their relationships. It's no longer healthy. They've taken things too far. I, I'm reminded of, a, uh, I'll, I'll just call the person a, a natural foods guru. I remember looking at a guy at the grocery store who was so, um, he was so obsessed with food and nutrition that he no longer looked well. Mm-hmm. We so we can. I mean, my point is, we can take anything way too far where it's controlling us. Yeah. Now you st- cite statistics that are very troubling. That sixty-four percent of Christian men have viewed pornography in the last month. Um, this is a, a big problem. Uh, what are some of the impacts of that, and how might one approach uh, confronting one's own addiction in this area? Well. I think we've got to be honest um, with what's going on. There are many that uh, pornography use has just been normalized. In other words, we just they go, well, it's not hurting anybody. So there's the rationalization, the denial. I can stop it at any time. And so we, we, we take it and make it normal. We normalize it in order to continue the behavior. So that's a good example. You've got to be honest. And, you know, nobody recovers from anything addiction-wise unless they're being honest. Hmm. And some of the the impacts of that particular addiction? Well, it's going to destroy relationships. It's also going to, uh, in the area of intimacy, it sets up uh, a false intimacy. It does alter brain chemistries. Uh, over time, where uh, it's like any other addiction, uh, and it will it it takes on all the characteristics of addict, addictive behavior, so it all has um, the same course of self destruction. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation again. We're talking this afternoon uh, with Doctor. Uh, Jans, uh, he is the author of Healing the Scars of Addiction, Reclaiming Your Life and Moving into a Healthy Future. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Greg Jans. He's the author of Healing the Scars of Addiction, and addiction does, in fact, leave scars. Well, in the book, uh, Dr. Jans, you say that uh, just knowing about addiction isn't enough to avoid them. Um, how can we avoid them? And it, it, that's assuming that we're approaching something in which we are uh, on the verge of addiction or may not um, be engaged in an activity in a healthy way if there is a healthy version of an activity. Well, you know, you've, you, if it's um, hurting you in relationship, if you'd rather be with your uh, substance or whatever it is, it's mood altering. If I choose it over people, if there's consequences financially and I continue it, if it ends up being the way that I process all my emotions, uh, let me tell you what I mean by that. Mm-hmm. If I'm angry, I go, okay, I deserve this drink. If I am had a great day, hey, I, I deserve this to celebrate. So we look at it as whatever it is, and I'm just using an example of a drink. It could be anything else as I'm using as an excuse when I'm having a bad day or I use it when I'm having a good day. It's my way of processing my emotion. One of the things that you say is that childhood survival strategies can metastasize into addictions in adults. 
How does that happen and explain that that process? Well, when we look at um, we move through adulthood, first of all, we need to realize that an addiction that starts early in our life can really create a system of uh, well, I'll say immature emotions. We don't go through the normal development stages because we have distorted our um, development and our emotions and what would be normal uh, growth and development by an addiction. This would be true of an eating disorder, somebody that turns to food, whatever type of addiction that maybe started early on, it, it distorts and it changes how we relate not only to others as adults, but also um, just a level of what I'll call emotional uh, intelligence and emotional maturity. Uh, I may not have learned how to deal with emotions or conflict. So if there's a conflict, I may turn to my addiction. It's distorted my normal growth. Now, you um, write about how personality can steer us towards certain types of addiction. Uh, Can you explain that? Because I think most of us wonder, is this an area that I'm vulnerable in? Sure. Well, you know, personality is interesting to look at. Um, You know, there can be those, I call them uh, stimulus seekers. They're the people who just love to have a stimuli. What I mean by that is they uh, are constantly uh, seeking a thrill. And so they've got a personality that's just maybe more vulnerable because they they like a lot of stimuli in their life. Uh, Maybe you know somebody like this. one of the uh, areas that we look at is this whole area of history of addiction, uh, a person that um, they've grown up in an addictive home and they've kind of developed what we'll call an addictive personality. And so that's certainly a case. Uh, there's also those who maybe have been a victim of trauma or abuse. And so what they're struggling with is uh, just more prone to to wanting to mood elevate, feel different. A uh, person who has had a lot of trauma can be more prone towards addictive behavior. These are just some possibilities in our in our personalities. Now, what is uh, dopamine, and what's its link to uh, addiction? Well, dopamine is our feel good chemical. Dopamine is that chemical in us that um, that we strive to, you know, uh, to get, we don't always realize that we're doing, but dopamine is um, the feel good. And so uh, we know that, for example, um, exercise helps elevate dopamine levels. It's, it's, it's that mood enhancer natural uh, that's in our body. But we know that over time, uh, certain drugs and alcohol, uh, may end up really um, disturbing the levels of that dopamine in our body where then we crave more and more, maybe more drugs, more alcohol, um, in order to raise that level back. So it can be responsible for some cravings. Now, you write that addictions like abusers take control uh, and the big question, I guess, is how do we stop them? Um, you've got to do this not in isolation. We have to do this with the help of others. And a person who uh, needs to break out of this has got to say, I I need help. 
And and that's a huge, huge step. It means I've got to step over the Grand Canyon of pain. Uh, I have to make a huge uh, breaking through shame that says, I need help. And that's that's generally where we see people uh, at the center of Place of Hope. Somebody that has come to that place go, you know what, I can't continue this. Um, because they see the destruction uh, and where it's taking them. Now, is it generally the person with the addiction that initiates that uh, seeking of help, or uh, is it typical that others are involved in helping an individual acknowledge and recognize an addiction um, and then pursue some sort of help? You know, we even hear sometimes the thing called uh, intervention. And um, intervention means that um, a person's not getting the help and they're living in denial, they're living in rationalization, and they are at a place of intervention. They're at a place that we've got to step in and ultimately throw them a life preserver and save their life. And intervention means I'm going to intervene. It is tough love. And I'm going to say, I love you so much. What's going on is not okay anymore. And you are going to get help. And we are coming together to make sure, because we love you, that you're going to get the help you need. Is there a way to seek to intervene that's less healthy uh, when you are confronting someone with a destructive addiction? Um. You know, I think what I think in terms of less healthy, I think of enabling. I think of uh, that situation where you love the person so much that you, that you're so afraid that you're going to upset them. Uh, it seems like the best thing to do is. And I was, in fact, I was just talking to uh, a mom who had a son, and and she says, "I love him so much." I know I, I I'll do anything for him, and I, I gave him twenty dollars, and and I, I I love him so much. But she knew what he was going to do with that twenty dollars, and um, the problem with that is it enables, mm-hmm. and but we love, and I get the love part. But you have to do what's in the best interest of the individual that, rather than allow them to self-destruct. You devote an entire chapter to consequences of uh, addiction. We've talked a little bit about that, but elaborate on some of what these um, consequences are. And does knowing the consequence generally have uh, any uh, much uh, influence on whether or not someone is willing to endeavor to recover or is likely to recover? Well, an addiction can have such a stronghold and be so powerful in our lives that one of the things that we see is a person will continue and continue despite a lot of loss. We've seen that's why a person will um, lose a spouse, lose a job, but they will continue in their addiction. And the reason why they're continuing is simply the power of that addiction. This is a person who, maybe it's an opiate addiction, maybe it's a uh, heroin, and and, and they will do anything, anything to satisfy that addiction because it is, I call it a stronghold, that addiction is controlling them. And we're going to continue our conversation 
In just a moment, we're talking with Dr. Gregory Jantz, Healing the Scars of Addiction, Reclaiming Your Life and Moving into a Healthy Future. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. We're talking with uh, Dr. Gregory Jantz, his book, Healing the Scars of Addiction. The subtitle of your book is Reclaiming Your Life and Moving into a Healthy Future. Let's talk about that upside of the book, Reclaiming Your Life and Moving into a Healthy Future. Is that possible? And what, what are some of the basic elements for someone in order for someone to succeed? It is possible. Some basic elements is, I mentioned one is, I have to make a decision to get help. I have to reach out. I have to be willing uh, to say to myself, what's going on is not okay. That's the big step. Um, You know, and the next step is um, I've got to get the kind of help that's going to give me long-term recovery. So for a person who maybe they're struggling with a food addiction and they go, you know, I'm, I'm going on the, a diet and, and then for one, one week, they do really good and the weekend hits and they binge for three days. You know, we, we can't do that. We can't recover in isolation. We can't use a Band-Aid uh, when we really need a surgery. And we've got to be willing to uh, walk through that painful process that says, I'll do whatever it takes. And I need to be humble. I need to also listen to others. Um, I may need to rebuild my physical health. I may need to be in support groups. Uh, I may need to uh, have an accountability person in my life. So it's, it's that willingness yeah. to really, really do whatever it will take. Now, finally, any advice about boundaries for a person living with an addicted family member? Well, one of the things that we want to look at, if you have somebody that you live with, I I just want to acknowledge how much you must love them. And one of the things that we need to look at is if something doesn't change in another year, another couple years, what is likely going to happen? Um, I saw somebody not long ago who... Uh, came through uh, treatment and care here, and I hadn't seen them for a while. And they, they looked, when they started, they looked um, uh, older. They looked uh, worn out. And I almost didn't recognize this person about two years later. The vibrancy, their skin had changed, their posture changed, their physical health immediately looked different. And an addiction is going to change how you look. Mm-hmm. It's going to change how you feel, and it's going to change how long you live. And we live in a culture and a society where a lot of addictions are socially acceptable. That doesn't mean they're healthy, and it doesn't mean they're right. But they have become more socially acceptable. Are you optimistic that given the attention that, that addictive behavior is now getting, that we are coming to a cultural agreement that uh, that uh, addictions that aren't just phil- physically debilitating but other kinds of addictions um, are not um, worth supporting, or do you think we is, we're a ways away from acknowledging that certain addictions, like to technology, uh, has a dangerous edge to it? Well, it has a dangerous edge to it, and we know that um, there's a line that can be crossed, and that line that can be crossed is a line that um, nobody starts off to say, "I want to be an addict." That's mm-hmm. not where we want it. 
nobody started drinking that wine because they wanted to be an addict. But um, there's a line that gets crossed. And uh, I think we're going to see more and more addiction uh, for both men and women starting at younger ages. Well, that's not very encouraging, but I appreciate so much. Sorry. (laughs) But it's truthful. The book that you've written to to help us walk through this challenge, Healing the Scars of Addiction, Reclaiming Your Life and Moving into a Healthy Future. As I mentioned, you um, have a place of hope that many have have, uh, come to to seek the kind of help they need. This is uh, in Washington State. Can you tell us just briefly about that resource that uh, our listeners might want to consider? A Place of Hope. Uh, is is really just that 34 years, and we uh, we were voted in a top place in the country to get help for depression. We uh, see depression and anxiety and addiction, and I know that we've got to take it to the whole person. There's got to be a foundation recreated to understand our faith and how much God loves us, despite where we feel like we maybe have ruined things with an addiction. And I, I do want to say there is hope. Amen. There is hope. Well, Dr. Jansen, Jans, thank you so much for talking with us today. Good to be with you. Appreciate it very much. Again, the book is titled Healing the Scars of Addiction, Reclaiming Your Life and Moving into a Healthy Future, both of which are possible. And this book's help us, book rather helps us to understand a bit better uh, how that is possible. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. For those of you who joined me in the second hour of today's program, I am back from uh, Guatemala traveling with Food for the Poor. And what an adventure we had. In fact, I can hardly wait for our campaign with Food for the Poor to tell you in greater detail some of the uh, events that uh, we had uh, the opportunity to participate in. The people we met along the way, the homes we visited, and so on. So I'm looking forward to that. I left the day after um, Mission Connection came to a close, and what a great event that was. Uh, Worth It was the theme this time around, and for those who attended, I know you were challenged, as was I, to consider the high cost of following uh, Jesus. I'm not talking about earning one's salvation, but when you stand firm, as Jesus said, we would know tribulation, we would know um, hardship in following him because they despise the master. They're going to despise his servants. We learned about uh, many who across the globe are experiencing that kind of suffering. And so we had a op- great opportunity to consider uh, how God wants to call and use us in the various places that he has purposed us to work. Uh, for those who attended Mission Connection, you know that uh, recordings of most of the sessions uh, were to be made available after the event. Well, I learned that the link to all the video and audio recordings uh, was just placed on the website, missionconnection.com. Um, I think you can go to the, in fact, I'm there now. I need to look around the, the uh, webpage, but missionconnectionwithanx.com and uh, recordings for the 2019 uh, conference can be found there now. Uh, also, I wanted to say if you would like to stay in touch with uh, Mission Connection, there are connection events that are coming up also, uh, I should say, almost all year round to maintain that relationship and to know which of those uh, might be of uh, greater uh, interest to you. You can check out Mission Connection and subscribe to their monthly newsletter. It's an e-newsletter, so you'll get it in your um, uh, your box and have the opportunity to read what's uh, what's new. Also, if you are a church, uh, a partner, if you have, want information about becoming a partner to the event, you can 
uh, request that kind of information there as well. So uh, do check that out, going to Mission Connection. And again, the audio and video of uh, the, the sessions that are going to be made available are now up on that site, 2019 slash recordings at missionconnection.com. Now, as we mentioned at the conference, not all of the sessions will be made available for security reasons. There are some uh, who are there present teaching workshops or plenary sessions uh, who work in areas where confidentiality is very important, not just for their sake, but for the sake of those they serve. And so there will be some missing from that lineup of a great weekend, but the vast majority of them will be found on the website missionconnection.com. Speaking of which, an American missionary in Brazil is under investigation and possibly facing charges of genocide for entering protected lands inhabited by an isolated tribe in the Amazon. This is according to to, uh, Christianity Today. Unlike uh, John Allen Chow, who was from the Pacific Northwest, he was an American missionary who was killed last year during one of his initial encounters with a remote tribe halfway around the world. Steve Campbell and his family, they've lived among indigenous people in northwest Brazil for more than 50 years. He's a second-generation missionary with Baptist Bible Fellowship International. He's been accused of venturing outside of his longtime home among the uh, Jamamdi people uh, onto territory belonging to another tribe, the only isolated tribe among eight ethnic groups in that area, according to the Brazilian newspaper. Well, he claimed that he crossed the neighboring land while teaching the uh, uh, Jamamdis how to use GPS to map the boundaries of their own land and promised not to reenter. In other words, he entered inadvertently. Well, the head of the government's Indigenous Protection Agency, Uh, has uh, enlisted the prosecutor's office and federal police to determine whether Campbell uh, violated the law and put the tribe at risk. If it is configured in the investigation that there was uh, interest to make contact, to use his relationship with other Indians to approach the isolated ones, he can be accused of a crime of genocide, even though no one was uh, injured or uh, he made no contact, by deliberately exposing the safety and life of the uh, uh, Himarimi. My best effort at pronunciation, the tribe is estimated to just have 100 people remaining. Well, in response to Campbell's investigation, indigenous rights groups have condemned his presence in the area, raised concerns of the possible spread of disease, killing off a population otherwise unexposed and without immunity. Now, again, he and his family have resided among these people for some 60 or rather 50 years. Well, similar pushback came up last year around the mission to the Sentinelese of Mr. Chow, biologists at Wheaton College told Ed Stetzer that isolated people will always be vulnerable to disease, uh, to disease rather, through contact, even when precautions are taken. They also raised the sad history of the uh, conquistadores who wiped out some native populations with the diseases they brought with them from Spain and Portugal to the Americas. Again, inadvertent. But fellow missionaries have defended Campbell's place in the Amazon. He is committed to the well-being of the, uh, the people he serves and the work his father and mother did for many years, being the one source of health care, providing the initial literacy school in their own language, uh, a former Brazilian missionary among isolated tribes and an expert in indigenous missions says they might be the only reason this group survived. Well, the investigation comes at a precarious time for Brazil's indigenous people. The Amazon jungle, the world's largest tropical rainforest, is home to a majority of the 100 or so remaining uncontacted tribes on Earth who are threatened by encroaching loggers and other land grabbers. And of course, the missionary 
is neither of those. President Jair um, Bolsonaro, who uh, took office at the start of the year, has been outspoken about his desire to see indigenous tribes become less isolated with plans to uh, deny future tribal land claims and, if possible, to allow industries to access natural resources on existing tribal territories. There is no indigenous territory where there aren't minerals. Uh, he uh, a Catholic uh, with evangelical ties said gold, tin, magnesium are in these lands, especially in the Amazon, the richest area in the world. I'm not getting into this nonsense of defending land for Indians. Again, that's a, a quote. Uh, just two years ago, illegal gold miners reportedly killed 10 members of an uncontacted tribe, then bragged about the feat. Dozens more in, uh, dozens more indigenous peoples uh, and rural workers uh, are killed each year in clashes over remote land. So this uh, is he sort of stumbled into the middle of a much larger debate over what's appropriate. But it also uh, illustrates the challenge of fulfilling the Great Commission. If you are forbidden access, uh, how can Christian witness make its way into those territories? Now, we've seen among uh, Muslims who are seeking uh, truth that they have had a visitation uh, with the Lord Jesus uh, in the absence of Christian witness. So God will not be prevented from uh, extending his grace to peoples who otherwise would not have uh, uh, that kind of access. But it does, again, point out the challenges of many missionaries who are serving at this very moment uh, to carry out the Great Commission, to extend the love of Christ, to serve the people, not to conquer or to strip them of their um, of the value of their land, but simply to uh, extend the love of Christ. This particular case is pending, and we'll try to keep you updated as more information is made available. Taking a look at uh, the remainder of this week, on Tuesday, we're going to talk with Thomas Terry, author of Images and Idols, Christianity for the Christian Life. The book is published by Moody. On Wednesday, we'll talk with Sarah B. Smith, Piecing Together Lives Shattered by Early-Onset Alzheimer's. I think that's a fear that lurks in the back of many uh, aging people's minds. It's one thing to age. It's another thing to lose one's capacity to remember. We're going to talk with Sarah B. Smith about piecing together lives that have been shattered by that early onset Alzheimer's diagnosis. And we're, we're talking about 50, 60 year old people. On Thursday, we'll talk with Kent Anon, author of You Welcomed Me, Loving Refugees and Immigrants Because God Loves Us, Loved Us First. Uh, regardless of what governments have to say, boundaries and so on, we do have an obligation to uh, recognize and uh, abide by the laws. But we do also have an obligation to love those who are refugee and immigrant among us. So we're going to talk about that tension that exists here in this country as the debate continues to rage. And what is an appropriate response? Uh, we don't have the capacity to um, impose the laws as individuals. We have lawmakers who do that. We may attempt to influence their decisions about how we move forward. Uh, but as individual followers of Christ, how do we respond to those who live among us? And we'll talk about that with Kent Anon tomorrow on the program. And then on Friday, as was the case this past Friday, when James Blend and, and uh, friends uh, hosted a fun Friday program, we'll do that. This coming Friday. So looking forward to lightening things up on Friday. I want to thank James Blind for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and a special thank you to guest hosts on the Georgine Rice Show in my absence last week as I ventured into Guatemala with Food for the Poor. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.